podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Spanish Football Podcast. I'm Phil Kitchmalides, joined as ever by Sid Lowe to go through what happened on Match Day 21 in La Liga. Hello Sydney. Hello Philip, how are you? I'm okay, how are you? Not too bad, thank you. Well, it's Monday, so you know. Typical Monday mode. And we don't just say that because, oh, it's the start of the week. It's because we have to do everything that reflects on the weekend, which means that we've got a lot of work on a Monday. But it's okay. We love it, Sydney. Right? We love it? We love it? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. We love it. That's we love not it. what I'd have said to you if you'd asked me this two hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> we did. I was lying, lying on the office floor going, come up with something, you moron. But you did. You did. So well done. Well done. Um, we've got lots to talk about uh, from uh, Match Day 21. Here are the uh, results on Friday. Cadiz continued their uh, really quite impressive home form. They beat Girona by two goals to nil. Then on Saturday, we had a hugely entertaining Andalusian derby between Almeria and Betis, which Betis won uh, 3-2 at the Power Horse Stadium. Then Sevilla beat Mallorca by two goals to nil. It's four consecutive home wins now for Sevilla, four consecutive away defeats for Mallorca. And Saturday night saw the crisis continue at Mestalla for Valencia. They were beaten 2 1 by Athletic Club. And when we say the word crisis, we're not using it lightly. They are in all sorts of trouble. On Sunday, Getafe and Rayo played out a 1 1 draw in a Madrid derby, which Sydney witnessed firsthand. Somehow Rayo didn't win this game. They really, really should have. Both teams missing penalties in this game. Then Atletico Madrid went to Celta and won 1-0. Again, I'm not entirely sure how because Celta Vigo really should have scored at least one, maybe two goals. Atleti reduced to 10 men with Stefan Savic getting sent off for the third time this year. And yet they still managed to come up with a victory thanks to Memphis Depay's first goal for the team. Valladolid nil, Osasuna nil and Barcelona beating Villarreal by a goal to nil. The seventh 1-0 win of the season for Barcelona. Pedri scoring the only goal of the game for the fourth time this season. Really quite remarkable. Un-Barca-like statistics. And they're 11 points clear at the top of the table. They're 11 points clear in part because Real Madrid didn't play this weekend. Certainly not in La Liga. They were busy being crowd world champions, winning the Club World Cup by beating Saudi Arabia's Al-Hilal 5-3 in the final. So congratulations to them. It means they're fixture they were due to play this weekend is being played on Wednesday. It's Real Madrid against Elche. Monday night football is Espanyol against Real Sociedad. Before we get into all of that, I want to tell you about what we've got over on our Patreon, because we released a brand new episode of TSFP Presents Top Fives last week as we discussed the biggest villains in Spanish football history. It was a long and dastardly list. Uh, so come and join us at <laughs> patreon.com forward slash TSFP. You get that, you get a weekly Q&A podcast, a bonus podcast, Al's paper reviews, access to the TSFP Discord. And we're now offering annual memberships with 10% off. Patreon.com forward slash TSFP. It's around four quid a month. To the talking points then, Barcelona 11 points clear at the top of the table. Another 1-0 victory for them. I mean, there's lots of eye-catching statistics about how Barcelona are top of the table. Half of their 18 league wins this season have been by just one goal. We can talk about Pedri, if you like, once again being the match winner. He scored six league goals now. It's as many as he scored in the two previous seasons combined. But I'd like to start, Sydney, if you don't mind, by talking about Ronald Araujo, who put in an absolutely monstrous monstrous performance. He was trending worldwide after that brilliant defensive display. We are a little bit biased in so much as we have a penchant for Uruguayan players, as regular listeners will know. 
But I'm asking the question seriously, is Ronald Araujo the best defender in La Liga right now and possibly the world? Because he has been absolutely superb, he's been consistent and he's been, quite simply, very, very difficult to get past. Yeah, uh, sometimes we, we lose sight of that, don't we, when we talk about defenders. The bottom line is, can you beat this guy? <laughs> And the bottom line, quite often with Araujo, is no, you can't. Um, he's a guy that does the defensive stuff really well, who reads the game well, who's very, very quick, who's who's incredibly strong, who you don't find an easy way round. Someone who appears to quite enjoy defending and someone who I think at times has encountered a certain degree of resistance, not least by, by Xavi. Now, I want to qualify that by... You know, I don't mean by this that Chavi didn't think he was any good, but Chavi saw that some, there were some flaws in his game. He talked about how, having not grown up at La Masia, that there were certain elements of bringing the ball out from the back that he was maybe maybe not that good at yet, that he had to work a way through to that. But I think the bottom line is, and, and this is something that I think is to Chavi's credit, actually, a, a pragmatism about seeing different approaches and seeing different things and basically seeing a reality, which is that this guy defends really, really well. And by the way, alongside him, so does Christensen. Um, a player that I wasn't, you know, wasn't that convinced about when they signed. I must confess, in the summer, and he's been very good indeed. But Adolfo was was absolutely fantastic. I was going to call him a man mountain, except of course mountains don't move. And Araujo, who is the size of a mountain, moves like water, my friend. It's uh, it's really quite something. He he made three or four really good interceptions. He seems confident enough about his uh, recovery speed to enable him him and the rest of the team, in, in fact, of course, to, to play a little bit higher up the pitch and run the risk of people running in behind them and still getting back across. In that sense, he reminds me a little bit of Rafa Varane, who used to do this with Real Madrid, and Varane was the person kind of covering for Sergio Ramos. But then maybe Araujo also has some of Ramos's aggression and physicality. So he's kind of got a bit of both of those things. Uh, and he was massively, massively important last night. I thought he was he was absolutely fantastic. I really enjoyed that moment as well. In fact, there were two of them, but one that really stands out is the one where, I must confess, I can't remember which Villarreal player it is. The ball's about to drop to him seven or eight yards out. And Araujo kind of stretches out a leg and, and clears it. And he gets up and he celebrates like he scored a goal. And I thought to myself, good, because that's what a defender should do. It should be like that for them. It should be that, that you know, that is their fight. Yeah, especially a Uruguayan defender. Very much as what we expect. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so Araujo, absolutely vital in Barcelona, keeping yet another clean sheet. They've only conceded seven goals all season. It's absolutely ridiculous. Three mm. of them came against Real Madrid back in October, which was their last league defeat. Villarreal had chances, though. <laughs> they really did have chances. They really should probably have scored at least one goal. So what do we read into that? Mm. At Barcelona, they do remain strong defensively, but it does feel like almost every game they do seem to give the opponents chances to score. Yeah, and I think that's implicit in the way that they play. Um, as I said before, in terms of Araujo is prepared to play high and, and, and trust in his ability to recover, but there will always be times when you don't. You, you play against good teams, and I think Villarreal are a good team, and I think Villarreal, if you look at the statistics, although they don't score many goals, they create quite a lot of chances. Um, the one where they really, really got caught last night was was actually on Christensen's side rather than on Araujo's side of the defence, and it was uh, Morales running through just before half-time. When I actually thought he took a conscious decision, and I I don't think it was necessarily the wrong one, but he took a conscious and slightly risky decision to go to the near post mm. rather than to go across Ter Stegen. Because actually yesterday was one of those games where the opposition had opportunities, but it wasn't a case of Ter Stegen making lots no. of saves, which it actually has been for quite a lot of the season. And I also think when you you know you say about 
the statistics and the, the seven goals conceded, the 16 clean sheets now in La Liga. Um, and, and I think three or four weeks ago, we, we spoke about this and we said that it felt slightly false, that statistic. Um, you, you told us about the expected goals against Column, which I think was twice as high as, as the number of goals they actually have conceded. So they're in positions where they do cede chances and then don't concede them. Either people miss them or Ter Stegen makes amazing saves. But I actually think I actually think there is a shift defensively as well, and that shift is partly about personnel. I, I don't want to reduce it just to personnel, but if you've got a defence that's got Christensen, Araujo, and Kunde in it, plus mm. a left back, sometimes Balde, sometimes Alba, but basically you've got three central defenders who defend, then I think you've got quite a lot going for you. Add to that, of course, the fact that they now, they now play. Basically, with four midfielders now, I know in theory it's three, and Gavi's playing in the top of the pitch, but it's not really three, is it? It's four. You've got the pressure that's led by um, not so much Rafinha or Dembele, but Lewandowski does it, and so all over the pitch they are trying to make life difficult for opponents. So while they do concede chances, they don't concede very many. Maybe not quite so few as for their goals conceded statistics to be so good. But certainly, they are conceding, and I think the shots shots faced statistic has them as the best in that mm. league, and I think that that is being borne out. Okay, so they're eleven points clear at the top of the table. We're not saying that La Liga is over. Absolutely not. That is not the case. We encourage you to keep downloading and listening to the Spanish Football Podcast because there's definitely <laughs> there, is, there is a league title <laughs> and lots of other interesting things going on as well. But Barca in a very, very, very strong position. Uh, I want to move on because I do want to talk about your experience of being at Mestalla. You went down to Valencia on Saturday night to witness firsthand. What was going on there? I gave you the scoreline, Valencia 1, Athletic Club 2. What we didn't mention at the top of the programme was the massive fans protest that took place, certainly for the first 19 minutes of the game. A large part of the crowd were outside of the stadium protesting against the owner, against Peter Lim. We tried to cover that protest on social media, but we weren't allowed to. What happened, Sid? Well, essentially, I was inside the stadium because the, it's actually the best place to see the protest because, uh, as you'll have seen from previous videos that I've done, for example, when, when Valencia reached the Copa del Rey final, there is essentially, uh, the, that side of the stadium has open balconies that look down onto the street. So from that position, of course, inevitably, everybody is looking down the street, looking at this protest, and, and, and I started to take some pictures and I was told I wasn't allowed to. Now, I must confess, I do not know clearly enough the 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 law on this uh, i did actually argue with the first security guard who told me this i said well but it's a it's a public street i mean i'm only taking photographs no you can't um this is you know not allowed to take photographs because i'm on private property so we didn't uh, not certainly at least not after i'd been told um but the the, the scenes were extraordinary you we you're in a situation in which uh, I think it was more than 50 Peñas, a supporters club, had agreed with this proposal by a group called uh, Libertad VCF, Freedom for Valencia Club de Football. And they'd agreed that the idea was that it wouldn't go into the ground until 19 minutes into the game. 19 because Valencia were founded in 1919. Um, the official attendance from the club was 37,000 and something. I did have it written down, but I can't remember exactly. But it was 37, 38,000. Now, using that as a basis, I think when the game kicked off and the whole of Avenida Suecia, which is the avenue that you look down on, was a sea of people. It was completely full, completely and utterly full, as far to the left as I could see and not quite as far to the right as I could see because to the right you can see all the way down the road. Um, if the overall attendance is 37,000, 38,000, I would say that when the game kicked off, 
maybe there's seven or 8,000 inside the mm. ground. Now, that's not to say there's necessarily 30,000 on that street, because obviously some would have arrived late and got in late and just agreed that, well, if it's 19 minutes, we'll wait in the bars, watch a bit at the start and then go in. Um, but I think when the goal was scored, when Valencia scored their first goal, which is kind of 16, 17 minutes, um, I don't think there's more than 10, 11,000 people in the ground. I think there's easily 10, 15,000 still outside. A lot of people have gone in and I think have waited in the, you know, in the corridors and in the, in, in the gangways, ready to go into the ground on 19 minutes when they score. So you're talking about, I would say, of the overall attendance, at least three quarters are not in there. To, to start with the image of course that they wanted to to achieve these fans was the image from above of the street, street full and the stadium empty now some media outlets have managed to get that photograph although it was nighttime and they're not particularly clear but the impact of that I think is huge the noise was extraordinary and it's quite a surreal experience being inside a ground and hearing all the chanting all the whistling or all the noise slightly removed mm. because it's happening outside so it kind of comes in, obviously the corners at Valencia are open, so it's easy for it to come in, but even so, I think we would have heard it. It was very, very noisy. There was this bizarre, well, in my view at least, slightly bizarre experience of the, the, the Tannoy man, the classic thing of Tannoy man. Now, for what it's worth, a lot of our listeners will know, I'm quite old-fashioned old for this kind of thing. I'm not a big fan of Tannoy men basically saying, come on, fans, make some noise anyway, because I think it's a bit naff. But it was even more bizarre on this occasion that just before kickoff, he's basically, Venga, aficion, I'm un palincha, like this. And there's a very slight pause. And then the noise is the whistling coming from outside the ground rather than the cheering coming from inside the ground. Um, they Even the brass band started playing about three or four minutes into the game and then got kind of drowned out by the whistles outside, the chance against Peter Lim, the chance for him to go. Um, and and the, the breakdown is complete now. Now, in terms of the specific situation this season... I must admit, I'm not sure it's entirely about Lim. Like, the broad context is about Lim and is about the ownership and so on, but the specifics of this season, I'm not sure really are. And the specifics, for example, of the departure of, of Gattuso, not really the club's fault, or at least not entirely, except, again, because of the context. But we've reached, I think, a breaking point now where the fans just do not want Lim there. The problem is, of course, as we know, this is a privately owned club. And therefore, Lim can only go if Lim decides he wants to go, if Lim finds someone to, to buy the club and someone who's willing to match the, the, the money that he put in or at least the valuation he makes of it. So for the, in the short term, at least, this doesn't really have a solution. I mean, at, this at, is at the risk of upsetting re- Valencia fans, he's not going anywhere. I mean, he really, no, exactly. I, honestly, I can't see him going anywhere. Remember a few years ago, uh, and I wrote about this at the time, uh, a few years ago, remember Kim Lim, who's Peter Lim's daughter, she put mm-hmm. out a very, very, very blunt, uh, and I actually think quite unpleasant for what it's worth, arrogant uh, mm-hmm. and unpleasant. Um, was it a tweet? No, I think it was on Instagram anyway, a, a statement. And she said, do these people not get it? This is our club and we'll do with it what we want. And I remember there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a line, and I can't remember where it comes from. I think it might be a biblical line. I think it is that says, from the voice of babes will come the truth. In other words, babies are innocent and they don't know not to say things, so they say them. And, and I think here is, again, from the voice of a child comes the truth. Not because she's innocent, maybe. Maybe it's more driven by arrogance. But, but this was a statement that is true of all owners of clubs. It's just unusual for it to be expressed so bluntly. And I actually think one of the things that Meriton, the ownership group of Valencia, have done wrong over the years, and I think it's improving, by the way, I really do think it's improved a lot over the last 18 months, but it's a minor thing. But one of the things I think they did wrong for a number of years was actually not communicate very well. 
was look like they were sort of challenging their fans. You know, that they didn't want to engage with them. That, and, and with Anil Murthy in particular, I think that happened. Now, I think they've tried to explain themselves better in recent years. I think they've tried to say, look, there isn't the money. The reason players go is because the financial situation is bad. But of course, some of what they broke can't be fixed. And of course, as players continue to depart, as managers continue to come and go, and this is, this is 15 managers in the nine years that um, Lim has been in charge. Admittedly, six of those are Voro. Right, but 15 managers mm. in nine years he's been in charge. Um, results collapsing. And in particular, of course, one of the things that the fans you know, cling to, and they, they're quite right to, is that at that period when they seemed to have found stability, when they won the Copa del Rey and got Champions League success, they sacked the manager who did that. They sacked the sporting director who was in, in, in place at the time. And they sacked the director general who was in place at the time. So it feels to the fans, I think, at times, almost like willful destruction. Now, I don't buy that. I don't see how it can be. I don't see what it's, what's in it for anyone for there to be willful destruction. But it is true that the fans now simply do not trust the owner. At best, they think he's incompetent and doesn't really care. At worst, they question his motivations in charge of the club. And I think the situation is... I look at it now and I think it's irreversible in terms of the social fracture. Now, obviously, if you start winning again, then things kind of get put to put on the back burner. But right now, the situation is really, really bad. And, of course, that social fracture... And apologies, because I feel like I'm going on a bit of a rant here, but, but you know, I'm trying to get as much of this in as I possibly can. Of course, that social fracture does have an impact on the sporting results, on the context around it, on a a set of players who are nervous, who maybe are fearful, who maybe are young and are not used to this scenario. Uh, Let me just put it in very clear terms in so much as how things are bad on the pitch for Valencia. They're in the relegation zone in the second half of the season for the first time since 1986. The only other time that they've been relegated is 1986, and that was the only other time they've been in the relegation zone in the second half of the season. This is a historically bad situation that they're in. One point from the last 21 available, and it's very difficult to see how they get out of it. The good news is, is that there's plenty of matches left, and it's extremely tight at the bottom of the table, so a couple of victories, and they'll move out of the bottom three. But that will not solve the problems off the pitch. Uh, let's move on. No. Let's move on and talk about... Uh, what I briefly mentioned, you went to Getafe against Rayo. And we can talk about the game if you want, but we should also talk about Andoni Raula, who has chosen to stay at Rayo Vallecano instead of going to Leeds United. He was approached. There was interest from the huge Premier League club, one of the most storied and historic clubs in England. And... Iraola has decided to stay with the mighty Rayo Vallecano, which is good news for Rayo fans and, and a small, tiny little win for La Liga fans in the sea, the ocean of Premier League financial <laughs> dominance. At least Iraola has stayed for the time being. Yeah, he in his press conference on Saturday, um, he was asked about this and he said... He was asked basically had anything changed, you know, what, what the situation was. And, and he, he didn't actually say the words... I am not going. But he was asked in the context of, you've said no, uh, what has changed? And he said, look, as far as I'm concerned, nothing had changed, in other words, from pre, pre that offer. And he said, nothing's changed in terms of my contractual situation and my commitment, which is 100% to Rayo. Um, he was then asked later on in that press conference, and this basically speaks to what we were saying, I think last Monday or maybe Tuesday, I can't remember which day we talked about this now. Um, he was then asked about, would you change 
the contractual situation. In other words, you sign a one-year deal all the time. If Raya offered you a three- or four-year deal, would you sign it? And he might as well have said no. Hmm. He said, well, I'm quite comfortable with the way that we work, which is to have a year's contract. And this is almost word for word what we'd said in the podcast, to have a year's contract, to focus entirely on my work, and then at the end of the season, you can have those discussions if you need to have them. Hmm. And both the club has the freedom and I have the freedom to to then talk about what we want to do. Um, I think what that tells us, of course, is that should an offer like this appear again in the summer, should it even be Leeds United, unless, of course, in the meantime, they go down, then he would very much consider it. In fact, on this occasion, he did consider it, despite his mindset, which is always that you see out the season and then you think about it. And why would he consider it? Well, there's two fundamental reasons. One is Rio and one is Leeds. And let me explain what I mean by that. One is Rio. Things are not great at Rio. They're not a particularly great club. You feel like maybe at times it's not particularly brilliant and, and maybe it's better to go. At the same time as knowing that you've done really, really well in La Liga and you've amassed sufficient points that you're not going to leave them in trouble. You know, you're not going to completely screw them if you walk away. Now, that part of it, in the end, of course, wasn't applied because he decided that the commitment had to remain. The other part, of course, is that feeling that this is a big club. This is an opportunity that may not come back, even if you have people around you saying, look, wait, there will be better options. Because the options don't always come back. You know, we saw Valverde out of work for two years. We still see Marcelino out of work now. Two really good managers who, in theory, should be coaching. But, of course, the jobs don't always come available at the time when you want them to, which is why we've seen Lopetegui go mid-season. It's why we've seen Unai Emery go mid-season. It's why we've seen Everton change managers mid-season. Sometimes those jobs that weren't available in summer become available now. And so there is always a temptation from a manager, however committed he is, and however he has that kind of almost a moral standpoint, and I, I think you probably can call it, as a, call it a moral or an ethical standpoint, that says mid-season, I'm not going to do this to a club. The temptation is always going to be there because what if? Now, what if something like this doesn't come up again? Now, for what it's worth, I think Idola is good enough. I hope that Raya Vallecano finished the season well enough that people will recognise that. Obviously, the fact that Leeds have recognised him already means that people are talking to talking about him. So I think these opportunities will come again. And I do think he is genuinely a very, very good coach indeed. And a really exciting one because he's not just good in the way that a lot of coaches are when they go to a smallish club and they make them tight and they make them defensive and they make them tough and they make them well organised. This is a coach that does all of that, but also makes them fun and makes them worth watching. Absolutely. And he improves the players that he has. Absolutely, he does. He hasn't, spent, he hasn't spent a lot of money. And I was looking and... Of the 11 players that started against Getafe, seven of them had started the Segunda División playoff final against Girona. It's the Mm -hmm. same core. He hasn't really had a lot of players come in. He has taken players and made them really quite brilliant. The the most expensive uh, player there is 2.5 million. Um, You look at the clubs they used to be at, and with the exception of, obviously, a Fran Garcia who's on loan from Real Madrid, and theoretically, Camello who's on loan from Atletico, but he was actually at Mirandesk last season. You look at the previous clubs of all of these players, Mm -hmm. and it's a whole load of clubs that are either second division or about to go down from the first division. Yeah, so Antonio Raula staying at Rayo Vallecano, uh, which is uh, which is really quite good news. Uh, let's talk about Real Madrid beating Al Hilal 5-3. Unfortunately, neither you or I were watching this game live because uh, we were watching uh, the Valencia game. But Vinicius was uh, MVP. He scored twice. He assisted for Benzema's goal. Fede Valverde is back. He, he had some good news off the pitch as well. We've been alluding to the uh, problems that... Yeah. 
I'd, I'd been told about, but obviously wasn't going to go into detail. I'd been told that um, there had been some complications with a, a pregnancy for his, uh, uh, with his wife. And then his wife publicly uh, tweeted uh, at the weekend that those complications, which they thought were going to be very, 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 very serious indeed, have actually uh, turned out to be OK. So uh, his uh, baby is going to be OK, which is great news for Fede Valverde. And we saw that on the pitch maybe a weight has been lifted from his uh, from his shoulders because uh, he uh, he seems to be back now let's not get carried away it, Ali Lal and Al Ahly in the, in the yeah. semi-finals not the most challenging of opponents and actually they both caused Real Madrid some problems and they both managed to score yes. goals against against Real Madrid so yes congratulations to Real Madrid eighth time uh, world champions but I was <laughs> I was reading the Catalan papers this morning and there was absolutely nothing about Real Madrid being world champions on the front page, <laughs> obviously, obviously. But you delve into page, I think, 17 it was, and there was something about Real Madrid, but it wasn't anything about them being world champions. It was about them having defensive issues at the club World Cup and conceding chances and conceding goals. And while it might be a little bit um, unfair to be quite so negative after they have been crowned world champions, there is something in that. They are not at their best defensively. There are players that aren't necessarily performing to that to the highest standard. And let's see, when they um, come back to La Liga, they're going to have a really difficult run of games as well uh, in a few weeks. They've got Barcelona, they've got Atletico Madrid, they've got Liverpool. It's going to be very, very challenging. So let's see how they get on with that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, look, as you say, the first thing is that they... Well, actually, no, the first thing, the first thing is, is Fede Valverde. And, uh, and, you know, it's just, just sort of genuinely really, really lovely seeing, seeing the, the message from his wife saying that, you know, a, a few weeks ago, I read a story in the papers basically saying that I'd lost a child and I didn't dare to challenge it because actually it's what I thought was going to happen. Even if it wasn't quite correct at the time, it's what I thought was going to happen as well. And just to see the response and then and then his celebration, the fact, of course, that this now means he's got to 10 league goals for this season because, of course, there was that bet earlier in the season that Ancelotti said, if he doesn't get to 10 league goals, I'm going to have to tear up my manager's licence because, you know, how can this guy not get to 10 league goals? So after the game, he was, you know, the whole thing was kind of really perfect from, a, from Valverde's point of view. It was really, really important and really good indeed. From, from Vinicius, who, who, was, who was absolutely fantastic. But you're right, if we are going to do more than just say they won, well done, and, and analyse it, actually some of the consequences are difficult ones. And some of the consequences are worrying ones for... for, for uh, sorry, conclusions, not consequences. Some of the conclusions we have to draw are worrying ones for Real Madrid. Because defensively, they did look poor. Rudiger didn't look particularly good. In fairness, Camavinga not looking good is what you'd expect, because he's not a left-back. Although I quite like him there as a footballer, if not necessarily as a defender. Um, I think the return of Carvajal once he's fully fit will be really important. I actually think we overlook how significant Carvajal is for the functioning of, of Real Madrid, both defensively and also in terms of, of carrying the ball forward and, and, and carrying a threat from slightly deeper. Um, but they didn't, didn't look particularly good at the back. And, and you're right, I don't think this changes very much. It's good, it's a title on, on, uh, under their belts, but I don't think it changes a huge amount. What I think will change things, of course, is the return of previously injured players. It's their 100th title. Yeah, I didn't know that. Okay. 100 trophies for Real Madrid. So, yeah, congratulations to them. Now, back to earth, back to reality with Elche at home on, on, on a cold Wednesday night. Let's see if they can uh, get a, a victory there. Uh, before we go, uh, let's tell you what's going on in the Segunda División. Las Palmas are top on 52 points after they beat Lugo 3-0. Levante are second, two points behind. They beat Andorra, Alaves, Granada, Eibar and Albacete are in the playoff spots. The mighty Oviedo are 12th after losing 1-0 at home. 
to Burgos. If there's something that we didn't talk about, please send us a question and we'll answer it on our Q&A pod tomorrow for patrons. Sydney, I could see that you wanted to say something about Oviedo. No, I was just smiling at the, at the thought of surprise, surprise, Oviedo lost 1-0. I mean, if it had been 1-1-0, it wouldn't have been a surprise either. Of the last 28 potential scores for a team in Oviedo's games, and that was the last 14 games, obviously there are two teams in every game, so there are 28 potential scores. Sorry, what? 20? There's not well, 28, 28 potential. potential oh, 20, results. 28 results. Potential, to potential number of goals scored by a team, right? Because it's on. 14 games and there's two teams in each game, Yeah. You've lost me, but I'm sure that, that's just me. I'm not very good right, at maths, right, but okay. fine. That's okay. So, so right, so it's so it's, it's it's 14 games. That is 28 um, numbers of goals scored by a team. You know, one in one game, zero in the other, and whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Of those 28, 27 are one or zero. Every single Oviedo game of the last 14, except one, has finished one nil, one one, one one nil, one one, or nil nil. Every single one except the 3-1 defeat against Andorra. In other words, 27 of 28 scores have been nil or one. We are Binary Code's favourite team. We are so incredibly dull. If we go up, I won't care. If we don't, I might find myself a little bit irritated. Irritated? Irritable. And irritated. Um, Fantastic. Thank you for uh, explaining just how dull Real Oviedo are. Um, Thank you for listening and sticking with us, Uh, patrons. Little little bonus for you right at the end there with uh, some Oviedo chat. Uh, We're going to be back tomorrow with the Q&A podcast. Make sure you join us at patreon.com forward slash TSFP. And if not, don't worry. We're going to be here, as always, on a Monday next week, running you through what happens in the world of Spanish football. So you can join us then. Adios. Cheerio. Network.